Well, as we continue in our study of Zechariah, I do invite you to turn to chapters 7 and 8. We'll cover two chapters today. And as you turn there, I just want to mention that these two chapters talk about real worship versus ritual worship. Real worship versus ritual worship. And they call us to ask us the question, do you worship God in truth? Do you worship God because you love God or has it all become tradition to you? What is the reason behind your worship for God and what it, where is your heart as you come to church and as you profess worship to Christ? In the way, these two chapters are surprising because God is speaking to righteous Israelites who came from Babylon to Israel. They returned from Babylon to Israel, and they did so in order to worship God. And as they seek to do this, God confronts them. And as God confronts them, this makes us realize how important true worship is and calls us to reflect on our own worship of God, to examine every aspect of our worship of God. Zechariah's message in these two chapters comes two years after the visions that God gave to Zechariah, which Abner spoke on last week. God gave Zechariah eight visions to call the Israelites to build the temple. The people obeyed. They immediately restarted building the temple. They made impressive progress. Two years passed, and they're at this point halfway done with the temple. It would take them a total of four years to finish it. And this, by the way, would be the temple that Christ would walk in. The temple would be built up over the years, but this would be the original second temple structure. So the people are building the temple to obey God, and because they're obeying God, you would think that Zechariah would come and he would encourage them. He would say to them that you are doing the right thing. You are submitting to God. Well done. Keep on going. Carry on. But the message that he gives them is a surprise. It's a message of warning, and it's clearly a message that they needed to hear in order for God to refine them and for God to sanctify them. He gives them a warning about ritualistic worship, which is fake worship, which is actually not worship at all. And he calls them to examine themselves to make sure that they're not simply performing religious acts, but that they're actually submitting to God, that they're worshiping God from a heart of love. When Pastor John preached on these chapters A number of years back, it was actually in 1977, he pointed to a New Testament passage which parallels this in which Christ also gives a lesson on true and false worship from Luke chapter 18. There Christ describes how two men walked into the temple to pray to God. One was a Pharisee, the other one was a tax collector. And the Pharisee came and he stood and he prayed and the scripture says that he prayed to himself And he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. In contrast, the tax collector standing some distance to the side wasn't even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Christ said that it was the tax collector who walked away justified. 
This is the message that God is giving to Israel through Zechariah. Zechariah exhorts all of us to examine our worship by considering four realities. He says, consider ritual worship, consider real worship, consider the results of ritual worship, which is punishment and separation from God, and consider the results of real worship, which is blessing and the presence with God. Well, first of all, Zechariah says, examine yourself to make sure your worship is not ritual worship. When the people saw that they were making progress in building the temple, they were thrilled. The central place of worship was being established. So they began to think about the specifics of the practices that they would do in the temple, the specifics of their religion. But God was already at this point seeing the dangers that Israel would face. As sinful people, they would be tempted to fall back into the traditions for which they were sent into exile. And so as the people start discussing temple worship, they actually reveal in their conversation the ritualistic attitude that had already set root in their hearts. So look at me at chapter look with me at chapter 7 verse 1 verses 1 and 2. It says now it happened that in the 4th year of King Darius the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. And the town of Bethel sent Sharezer and Regimelech and their men to entreat the favor of Yahweh. Now let me mention here that these men who are coming with this question, they are godly men and they are men who want to please God. And here's the question that they ask, which reveals their ritualistic attitude. The sp- spokesman from the group says in verse 3, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? Now, the question seems honest. Shall I keep mourning in the fifth month? And we may may ask, what is the fifth month? To us, it's just another date. But to Israel, this was a significant date. The fifth month was when Jerusalem fell and was destroyed. To us, it would be like September 11th. September 11th is just another date. But if I were to ask you, what is September 11th? What is 9-11? I would not need to explain to you what it is. Because all of you would have an image of the two airplanes flying into the Twin Towers, hitting the Twin Towers, and then the towers being engulfed in flames and smoke rising to the sky. Well, that's exactly what the Israelites imagined and what they permanently had in their minds when they thought about the fifth month. They had, the temp- they had an image of the temple burning and just billows of black smoke rising to the sky as the temple was crumbling down. That's what the people mourned on the fifth month, and that's what they were asking about. So the question is, okay, well, what's wrong with grieving? Or what's wrong with them asking if they should grieve? Well, it's actually good to grieve, and especially if you're grieving over sin. But the problem with this question was that they were thinking about this as an act that they would perform to win the favor of God. It's as if it was some kind of a charm that they could carry out. If we grieve, God will bless us. 
They said, should I grieve as I have done these many years? Their focus was on the act itself. We've been fasting for all these years. Is this what we need to keep doing in order to keep receiving the blessings that God is giving us? And so you get the sense right away that their heart is not in this. Well, God, in his grace, gives more to the people than they even ask for. And he goes straight for the heart. God says to them, I do not want your ritualistic and your false worship. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, God says, Speak to all the people of the land and to the priests and say, When you fasted and when you mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, are you not eating for yourselves? And are you not drinking for yourselves? Notice here that even though only a group of people came to ask him this question, God is addressing all of the Israelites. He says, speak to all the people of the land. He wants everybody to understand what true worship is. He he wants all the people to know how to worship him. And so then God says, your fasts that you carried out, they were all ritual. They were not done for me. That fifth month that you fasted, was that really for me? And then he says, oh, and you don't need to be modest. I know that you fasted also on the seventh month. But that seventh month that you fasted when Gedaliah, the governor of Judah, was assassinated, was that really done for me? And God continues and he says that, and I know that you did this for many years, as you say. These 70 years that you did this. Was all of that really done for me? And 70 years is the amount of time that the Israelites spent in exile. So they did all of this fasting while they were already suffering in exile. But God is not done. He then adds, in addition to the fasts that you did in the past, you're also doing feasts right now, but are you really doing them for me? And the idea here is that whether you mourn or you celebrate, the act in itself does not please God. That's why Paul explicitly commands us in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. If you're not doing it for God because you love God, it doesn't please God. It's actually repulsive. To God, I remember John Piper gave an example of such, an, such a scenario. He said, imagine that a husband comes home on Valentine's Day and he brings flowers to his wife. He gives them to her and his wife says, that is so sweet, you didn't have to do this. And his response is, it's Valentine's Day. Of course I had to do this. Well, What happens to the gesture that he was doing? How would his wife receive that at that point? Those flowers that could have been beautiful, a beautiful gesture, now become a repulsive act to her. The husband didn't do this for his wife. He did this for himself because he felt that he had to. Well, that's what God is saying about all of the ritualistic worship. If you're not doing it for God, because you love God, then it's only external. It's like those whitewashed tombs that are clean on the outside, 
but they have a stench of death on the inside. If you're not doing it for God, then you're depending on your own works to win favor with God. If you're not doing it for God, you're putting yourself essentially in the place of God because God is supposed to be the focus of our worship. But if you're doing it for yourself or because of yourself, you're putting yourself as the focus of this worship. And so essentially ritual worship becomes self-worship. Now to emphasize the seriousness of the sin of ritual worship, God says that this is exactly why Israel was sent into exile in the very first place. Because worship of God became a tradition for them. Look at verse 7. God says in verse 7, Are not these the words which Yahweh called out by the hand of of the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and at ease along with its cities around it, and the Negev and the Shephelah were inhabited? Ritualism was one of the sins that God sent prophets to Israel to confront in the Israelites. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, God says, I have had enough of burnt offerings. I take no pleasure in them. In verse 14, Isaiah 1, 14, God says, My soul hates your new moon festivals and your appointed times. But you say, I thought God instituted all of these Sacrifices. I thought God commanded all of them. Why does he say all of a sudden that he hates them? Well, he answers this question in Isaiah 29, 13. He says that this people, they draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts from me. God wants the heart. That's why God commanded Israel from the very start, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And that's why Jesus repeated this command and he called it the greatest command. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. God does not want tradition. God wants true worship that is done out of love for God. And this brings us to the second exhortation that Zechariah gives. Zechariah says, examine yourself to make sure your worship of God is real worship. That it's not ritual worship, but that it's real worship. If God doesn't accept ritual worship, then the question is, well, what kind of worship does God accept? And the answer is simple. Worship that you offer to God because you love God. When Jesus was restoring Peter in John chapter 21... Jesus asked Peter one question, the same question three times. He said to him, Peter, do you love me? And that's what God is looking for in worship, in true worship of him. He is looking for love for God. And so we can ask, well, what kind of a person loves God? And what kind of a person offers real worship to God then? And this answer is also simple, but it's not easy. And it's not actually humanly possible. It's a person who is like God. Zechariah continues here to give a description of a person who gives true worship, and that person has the character of God. Look at verses 9 and 10. God says that this is what true worship looks like. Verse 9, he says, Judge with true justice and show loving kindness and compassion each to his brother. 
And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the sojourner or the afflicted. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. So what does a person who loves God and who worships God in truth look like? This is a person who shows true justice. Just like God, don't show partiality. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 9, there is no partiality with God. This is a person who shows loving kindness. Just as God loved us and transforms us, so are you to love and serve others. This is a person who shows compassion. And this word compassion is related to the mother's womb in Hebrew, and it conveys immense care that a mother has towards her baby. And this is what we're supposed to do. Just as God does this towards his own, we are supposed to also do this towards others. Now, on the flip side, this is a person who does not oppress the widow or the orphan or the sojourner or the afflicted. Do not mistreat those who cannot defend themselves. James says that pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. All of this means that God is not simply calling us to do things. God is calling us to be like God. And we get this message not only in the Old Testament, we get this message in the New Testament as well. Matthew 5.48 says, You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Luke 6.36, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God and Christ also forgave you. God is saying here, to offer acceptable worship, you have to be like God. You have to be a child of God. This is the standard, and that is our goal. 1 John 3, verse 2 says, We know that when Christ is manifested, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Now, you might say, can't you do all of these things and still be a fake, be a fake worshiper? And the answer is that if you do this out of a heart of love for God, then it's real worship. But if you do this out of an evil heart, then it is repulsive worship. It's not worship. And this is why Zechariah continues, and he goes after the, after the heart once again in verse 10. He says, do not devise evil in your hearts. God is saying that everything starts in your heart, whether it's good or evil. Matthew twelve thirty four says, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. True worship of God comes from the heart. It starts in the heart. And again, to reiterate that statement that Jesus made, that the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. The heart is the starting point of all of the actions, and then the actions will follow in true worship of God. And we can think about this practically for our lives. If you're struggling with actions in your life or sin in your life that expresses itself in actions, you need to examine your heart. Worship is sweet to God and it's accepted by God only if it originates in the heart out of love for God. Well, after exhorting us to examine our worship, 
Zechariah then describes the results of ritual worship and real worship. And he begins with ritual worship, and he challenges the Israelites and us by implication. He challenges us to consider the horrifying results of ritual worship, which is separation from God. It's punishment away from God. And here's the sum of it. God rejects worship of ritualistic worshipers. Jesus said that the Pharisee who was praying at the beginning when I started, he was praying to himself. He wasn't praying to God, and so God refused to hear him. In Isaiah 1.15, God said to the Israelites, when you spread your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. This is how God responds to false worship. And Zechariah gives this warning of punishment to the Israelites in his day. He says that the reason that Israel went into exile was because the people became ritualistic worshipers and worship of God became a tradition for them. And so God judged them. Verse 11 says, they refused to give heed. The Israelites refused to give heed and turned a stubborn shoulder and dulled their ears from hearing God. And then Zechariah goes on after this, and he goes on, he goes after the heart yet again, and he said that the core issue of their ritualistic worship was the heart. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, he says, they made their hearts diamond hard. Diamonds may be beautiful, but they are one of the hardest materials out there. I read in the Yale Scientific that diamonds are so hard that to cut the diamonds, you have to use special tools that have diamonds within them in order to cut through the hard material of the diamond. Diamonds are essentially impenetrable. And that's what God is saying here about the hearts of the rebellious Israelites. He's saying that their hearts are like diamonds. They are impenetrable. And because of the hardness of their hearts, God punished the Israelites with exile. Zechariah continued in verse 12. He said, therefore, great wrath came from Yahweh of hosts in reference to the exile. Now, the amazing thing here is that this wrath that he's speaking about, it came on a people who appeared to be religious. God poured out his greatest wrath on a religious nation, but it was religious hypocrisy. And God did to them, Zechariah continues, just as they did to him. They were never true worshipers of God, so God did to them as they did to him. Look at verse 13. It says that just as God called and they would not listen, So then they called, and I would not listen. And that's the scariest reality that people will face. That they will cry out to God, but God will not listen because their cries will be false. They'll be fake. God will respond to true cries of repentance, but God will reject false repentance. And remember Esau who sold his birthright to Jacob. Hebrews 12 revisits this episode and says that after he sold his birthright, he pleaded for the blessing with tears. 
He wanted the blessing and he pleaded with it while crying, but he was rejected. The question is, why was he rejected even though he cried? Well, because he wanted the blessing. He wanted the prosperity. He wanted the comfort that came with this blessing. He wanted the gift, but he didn't want the giver. He wanted nothing to do with the giver. And so Hebrews says that because he did not have true repentance, he was rejected. And that's what God did with the false cries of the Israelites. Instead of listening to their cries, God says in verse 14, I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they have not known. The Israelites thought that because they were in Israel, because they were in Jerusalem, because they were in the temple offering sacrifices, they thought that they were near God. And the reality is that while they were physically near, their hearts were far from God. And so God cast them out of the land. And this is the result of false worship, rejection by God. And this will culminate ultimately on that frightening day when false worshipers will stand before God and God will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So the question for us is, how can we escape this judgment of God? And there's only one way. There's only one answer to this. Peter, sa- Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the only answer. And Paul says in Ephesians 2 that when we do repent, God makes us alive with Christ and he seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When we have true repentance, we are united with Christ, but we are united with Christ only if we have true repentance. So Zechariah calls us to consider the results of this ritualistic worship, this separation from God, rejection by God. And he calls us to repent so that we don't suffer this judgment. But God does not only give us a warning, or he does not only give Israel a warning. God also draws us to himself by showing us the beauty of who he is and the beauty of true and eternal fellowship with him. And this is what he does by describing the results of true and real worship. So he calls us to consider ritual worship, to consider real worship, then to think about the results of ritual worship, and now to consider the results of real worship. And this is chapter 8. In chapter 8, Zechariah describes the blessing of being with God in the millennial kingdom. Now, there might be those who say, I'm not sure... I believe in the millennial kingdom. 1,000 years of peace, of no crime, of no corruption, just sounds little too good to be true. Well, this chapter describes the millennial kingdom with a statement that is repeated over and over in order to help us with this. The statement is, thus says Yahweh of hosts. It's as if God knew that this description would be hard to grasp, hard to receive. And so to make sure that we understood that this was coming directly from God, this statement is repeated over and over and over. In verse 2, it says, thus says Yahweh of hosts. Verse 3, thus says Yahweh. 
Verse 4, thus says Yahweh of hosts. Verse 6, 7, 9, 14, 19, 20, 23, thus says Yahweh of hosts. Zechariah is saying, I'm not the one coming up with this description. If you don't believe in this, it's not me you're rejecting. It's God you're rejecting. I remember last summer I was taking an Uber to the airport, and I started talking to the driver about the Bible. And when I started this conversation, he immediately said to me, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Um, I read the Bible all the time. And then he said, but you have to be careful when you read the Bible. And so I said, okay, tell me more. He said, some of the Bible is true, and some of the Bible is not so true. And so I was intrigued by this. And so I said to him, well, how do you know which parts of the Bible are true, which parts of the Bible are not true? And I kid you not, you cannot make this stuff up. His response was this. The words that appear in the red, they're true. (laughs) The words that appear in the black, they're not so true. Well, I looked at my Bible. I have no red in my Bible. (laughs) It's all black. He's dead serious. I'm trying to contain myself in the back seat. But what Zechariah is doing is he is helping us understand that this word, this description, this chapter that Zechariah is presenting for us is coming directly from God, even if it's hard to believe. Thus says Yahweh. Now it's fair for us to ask, How is such a kingdom of perfection, of sinlessness, how is such a kingdom of peace possible? Well, Revelation 12 says that Satan will be bound for a thousand years and says that Christ will reign as king. And with Christ as king, there will be a righteous kingdom. And so as God describes the millennium kingdom, he gives us three perspectives in this chapter, in chapter 8. First, He calls us to long for this millennial kingdom. And he does this by describing the beauty of the kingdom. He says that this kingdom will be beautiful because it will display God's loving pursuit of his people. Chapter 8, verse 1 says this. Then the word of Yahweh of hosts came, saying, I am jealous with great jealousy for Zion, or Israel, and with great wrath I am jealous for her. When Israel sinned, God refused to be indifferent, and so he punished Israel in order to get Israel to repent. But when God punished Israel, God refused to let the enemies destroy Israel, and so he protected Israel and destroyed the enemies. And there is coming a day when God will destroy all of God's enemies in Armageddon, and he will establish this millennial kingdom. And so Zechariah points out that this kingdom will display the fact that God pursued Israel so that he would fulfill all of his promises to them and so that he would dwell with them. So the kingdom will be beautiful because it will display God's pursuit of Israel and also because it will display God's presence with Israel. Verse 3 says, Thus says Yahweh, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of Yahweh of hosts will be called the holy mountain. 
when Israel rebelled, the glory of God departed from Jerusalem. This is Ezekiel 10 and 11. But in the millennium, God's glory will return to Jerusalem and will dwell with the people of Israel. And with God in Jerusalem, Jerusalem will be the city of truth. You think of Las Vegas, it's a city of gambling. You think of Washington, D.C., it's a city of politics, perhaps corruption as well. You think about the millennium, it's going to be, Jerusalem is going to be the city of truth. God's people, believing Israelites and believing Gentiles, will enjoy perfect fellowship and presence with God. The kingdom will also be beautiful because it'll display God's peace. So you'll have God's pursuit of Israel, God's presence with Israel, and God's peace in Israel. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age, and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. Over the past few years, many years perhaps, we've seen an immense rise in violence here in the States. Last July, a 70-year-old woman was attacked by four young men in broad daylight. These perpetrators were 18, 14, 13, and 11. Just earlier this year, a teacher was shot at her school, and the shooter was a six-year-old boy. Now, I got these just by searching crime in Google. The kingdom will be the exact opposite. You type crime in Google during the millennium, you're going to get this page cannot be found, right? Now, I'm not sure if this is going to be Google in the millennium, so (laughs) we'll see. But it says old men and women will be completely safe outside. Boys and girls will play in the streets. There will be such widespread peace that Isaiah 11 says, that a little child will even play with the cobra. For a thousand years, life on this earth will have peace. Now, the kingdom will also be beautiful and glorious because it'll display God's power, God's pursuit of Israel, God's presence with Israel, God's peace in Israel, and God's power. Now, the reality is that you think about a kingdom like this. And it's hard to believe. It's hard to envision something like this. It seems impossible. But God says in verse 6, if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant, will it also be too difficult in my sight? In Genesis 18, Sarah thought that it was impossible for her to have a child because of her old age. God said to her, is, it an, is anything impossible for God? And so she gave birth to Isaac. In the millennium, God will demonstrate his power by establishing something that is, seems completely impossible to us. It will be peace. But that's because the Messiah, who will reign, he is the prince of peace. Well, finally, the kingdom will be beautiful because it will display God's preservation, God's protection of Israel. In verses 7 and 8, God says, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land where the sun rises and from the land where the sun sets, and I will bring them back, and they will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. So from one end of the world to the other end of the world, wherever the people of Israel are scattered, God will bring them home. And God says that they shall be my people and I will be their God. God's glory 
will return to Jerusalem. Peace will fill the earth. And God's people will fellowship with God in perfection. And so the first perspective that Zechariah gives to us, that God gives to us, is to long for this kingdom, long for this millennial kingdom. The second perspective that God gives to us is to live in light of the kingdom right now, today. Zechariah says to the Israelites, be strong in God's work as an exhortation for them to live today in light of the future millennial kingdom. God says, be strong in God's work. Now, for the people in Zechariah's time, this meant continue to build the temple. In verse 9, God says, let your hands be strong to the end that the temple might be built. Your hope in God about the future events should cause you to live your life for God in the present time. Oliver Wendell Holmes, a Supreme Court justice from a previous era, said that some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. God says the exact opposite. Being heavenly minded means that you must live for God right now. You have to be strong in God's work. God also tells the people, be strong in God's grace. Depend on the grace of God. When the Israelites came back from exile, Zechariah describes, he says that there was no money to pay the people. There was no food to give to the animals. There was danger all around because the Samaritans were attacking them. But God says, depend on my grace and I will bless you. Verse 12, God says, the vine will yield fruit. The land will yield produce. The heavens will give dew. I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. God was saying, depend on my grace and I will bless you right now and in the future. Now, as God encourages them to live for him in the present, he says, be strong in God's promises. Believe all of God's promises. In verses 14 and 15, God says, just as I purposed to bring about evil to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I have not relented, so I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Everything that God promised to Israel in terms of judgment, God did. And so everything that God is promising or has promised to Israel in terms of salvation and blessing, we can be sure that God will do this as well. The fact that God punished Israel doesn't mean that he rejected Israel. It means that he's keeping his promises to Israel. And so if he punished them, that means he will also bless them just as he has promised. And then God says, be strong in God's truth. Your hope in the future millennial kingdom should affect you now by you walking in the truth right now. God says in verse 16, these are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Jerusalem will be a city of truth in the millennium. But God calls the people to live in light of that future kingdom right now in Zechariah's time. We all will be in the millennium. But God is calling us to live as people of the kingdom even right now. And then again, he turns to the heart in verse 17. And he says, let none of you devise evil in your heart against another and do not love false oaths. For all of these are what I hate. God goes after the heart yet again. And here's the question that we can ask ourselves. Do you do 
what God hates? Do you do what God hates? Or worse yet, do you do, or do you love, I should say, what God hates? Do you love what God hates? God calls us to hate lies, to hate half-truths, to hate deception, any kind of falsehood, and instead to live in truth and in honesty according to the word of God, because God is the God of truth. So as God shows us this millennial kingdom and the beauty of life within the kingdom with God, he calls Israel and he calls all of us to live in light of the kingdom right now. So God says, first, long for the kingdom, and second, live in light of the kingdom. And finally, as God describes this millennial kingdom, he, says, he gives a third perspective, and he says, delight in the future kingdom, because God will turn mourning to joy. He will turn mourning to merriment. We know the song, No More Night, and we sing it at memorial services. No more night, no more pain, no more tears, never crying again. This song gives us a small glimpse of what the millennial kingdom will be like. God will transform fasting to feasting. In chapter 7, the people asked, do I need to fast on the seventh or on the fifth month? And God answers and says here, he's going to turn all of these fasts into feasts. The fourth month when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, the fifth month when Jerusalem fell, the seventh month when the Jewish governor Gedaliah died, the tenth month when Jerusalem was besieged. God is going to turn all of these fasts into feasts. And there might be dates on the calendar in your life right now that when you think about them, they evoke pain, they evoke grief, they evoke tears. Well, God is promising to us here that he's going to transform all of this and those days of sadness will be turned into, into days of celebration. So first, God will turn fasting to feasting. And then second, God will transform all of the enemies to entreaters. The nations who hated God, who hated Israel, will join Israel and go to worship God. Look at verse 21. The Gentiles, will say, the Gentiles will say this, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of Yahweh and to seek Yahweh of hosts. People who hate God or who hated God and who hated God's people will worship God. When I was in high school, I remember a student who was always in trouble. He was always in some kind of a fight. He was always in the principal's office. He was always getting in trouble. And my last high school memory of him was when he was getting arrested by the police because he brought a gun to school. Well, fast forward about five years, I'm standing, I'm in college, I'm standing in crossroads, and I see this guy walk into crossroads. And I'm thinking, is that the same guy? So I came up to him and I, talk, I asked him, I said, his name was Jonathan. I said to him, Jonathan, what are you doing here? I was just so shocked. And so we chatted and he shared with me that he had become a believer a few years back and that someone recommended for him to come to Grace Church because it was a good church. And this is what God will do worldwide. The people who hate God will repent and they will come and they will worship God. Well, finally, God says that as he will achieve this, 
He will transform Israel's humiliation to honor. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, In those days, ten men from every tongue of the nations will take hold of the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Ten men for each Jewish person simply means that there will be a large number of Gentiles who will repent and who will join the Jewish people to come and to worship God. At the Tower of Babel, the tongues were confused because the people refused to worship God. Here it says that the people will come from every tongue of the nations in order to worship God. And the Jewish people who suffered all throughout their existence, they will themselves come to God And with the Gentiles, they will go together and they will worship God and they will be recognized as the people of God. It says that the Gentiles will say, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And at that point, God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, that promise will be completely fulfilled as the Gentiles join the Israelites to come and to worship God. This will be the millennial kingdom. And as God describes this to Zechariah, he calls Israel and all of us to delight in this future reality of the millennial kingdom. But Zechariah is saying that this millennial kingdom will be the reward for those and only for those who offer real worship to God. And let me just finish with this one thought. When Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, she asked him, do we worship on this mountain of the Samaritans or do we worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus said to her, true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth, for it is such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. This is the message of Zechariah. God demands real worship, not ritualistic worship. Those who offer rituals will be rejected by God. Those who offer real worship will fellowship with God in the millennial kingdom and beyond that for all of eternity. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, we thank you that you have shown us what awaits us, us who love you. Lord, who thank you for giving us your son so that we might be saved, so that our sins might be forgiven, so that we might be able to offer you true worship. Lord God, as we walk away tonight, I do pray that you would continue to work in our hearts. I do pray that our hearts, our minds, our lives would be fixed on you and that our life's goal would be to live for Christ and would be to offer you true worship. Lord God, may, be this, may this be the purpose of our lives. Lord, I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.